Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome to 2021. Hope you had a beautiful end of the year. Uh, 2021 for us at Strong Towns is going to be the year of action. We have labeled it the year of action because we're going to focus this year on taking steps to transform our cities, towns, and neighborhoods. We have a lot of things planned. And throughout the year, you're going to see a, a lot of new stuff coming out from us under this banner of the year of action. But the first one is something we're calling the local motive tour. This is a 10 stop tour. Each stop is going to be a specific course that you can take uh, that's going to help you take action in your community. Courses like picking your next bike lane battle, how to do community engagement that works, how to clear a path for small scale developers, things that are very practical, uh, very action oriented. We're going to have some great presenters and some great speakers opportunities for you to ask questions and opportunities for you to participate. You can get all the information on the local motive tour by going to strongtowns.org forward slash local motive. It's all one word, L-O-C-A-L-M-O-T-I-V-E. You can get signed up. Uh, there's continuing education credits for each of these. You can get yourself a round trip ticket to all 10 stops. You can get a much reduced price ticket for an individual stop if you only want to do one. Come and take part. Sign up the Local Motive Tour. This podcast, you're going to really enjoy. The first one is a part one here of a two-part podcast with Matthew Iglesias. I think you will really like it. Take care, everybody. You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I was asked to read the book, One Billion Americans by Matthew Iglesias. I had it sit on the shelf. I really wasn't interested. The idea seemed so preposterous to me that I assumed that Matt was just trolling everybody. I was wrong in that. I, I've now read the book. And while it's certainly provocative, I found it serious, thoughtful, compelling. And I'm very excited to speak to the author, Matthew Iglesias is the author of One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. He's the host of the Weeds podcast, co-founder of Vox, and he now writes on Substack at slowboring.com. Matt, welcome to the Strong Downs podcast. Really glad to be here. The U.S. population today is about 330 million. You're proposing we triple that. I've got pages here of questions for you, so I want to get into the details, but let's just give everyone a broad argument for why a billion Americans is a good idea. Sure. There's lots of different reasons, to be honest. Uh, so like the, the official reason that is stated in the book is, you know, we should pay attention to America's role in the world and to the questions of international competition with China that are garnering more and more attention. And there's a lot of stuff for the foreign policy people to chew over there. But my read of history, right, if I was to give like a, like a big picture take, right, is ultimately it's not the foreign policy people and the generals who sort of determine who wins and loses in these struggles. It's actually the domestic management of countries. You know, we, we prevailed against Nazi Germany because we had a bigger country. We prevailed against the Soviet Union because communism was not a good idea. Like if, if the communist economic system 
had been amazing if Khrushchev was right and they had buried us in consumer goods. There wasn't like something that they were going to cook up at the Pentagon to undo that. And right. that, well, the, the Soviet Union had very impressive military capabilities, you know, but it didn't it didn't work. The whole reason China is such a big deal at a per capita living standards of like Bulgaria or Mexico is that it's giant. And like everybody knows that on some level, it's the scale that turns China into a to a major power, but it's also scale that turns the United States into a major power. If uh, your listeners are probably familiar with Canada, uh, which is a nice country, um, I've been there. I enjoy it. There's good Canadian people. I'm from Minnesota. We're a little close. Yeah. There you go. So it's <laughs> it's close to home, right? Um, but also Canada, it's like we kind of make fun of them here in America because it's it's like a rinky-dink country. Sure. Um, it's a cute place full of nice it people. It doesn't matter. And why is that, though, right? It, so Canada's geographically larger than the United States, but we have 10 times as many people as they do. So there's an international element of that. But again, to push the Canadian example, population growth, I think, will make us stronger. One thing that happens is that if you're Canadian and you're ambitious, right, if you want to be a TV star, if you want to really make it in the business world, you tend to come to the United States, right? Because we have scale, New Zealand, Australia, all those places, good high living standards, but they suffer from brain drain toward the United States. Uh, then even sort of closer to Strong Counts' work, we have a lot of communities in the United States that if you look at them individually, you can say, okay, well, the problem here is this, the problem here is that. Uh, but the solution in almost every case to the problems of a Toledo or a Grand Rapids or a Binghamton, on some level, it involves getting more people to live there, to get on a, a more robust trajectory. Not that they have to be huge teeming cities, but that they can't be emptying out of people. But that's not a scalable solution, right? Like Toledo can poach growth from Akron, but like systematically, if the country's population is not growing, then some places have to shrink for others to grow. And that's actually very difficult. I mean, I think that we have a tremendous amount of wastage in terms of both physical infrastructure and sort of social and community capital happening as places shrink in the United States. A lot of the work that you've done has been very instructive to me in, in thinking about how profound these issues are. I often find that when I travel, people have superficial diagnoses of, you know, what's ailing Buffalo. Because uh, there's always some specific story, right? There were some policy mistakes. There was some bad luck. Maybe they got screwed by a national policy decision. There's always a story. But the sheer quantity of American community is that suffer from some combination of bad weather and deindustrialization that have put them on this kind of bad trajectory is something that we're not thinking super seriously about as a as a country. And so part of the vision of growth is that it makes us stronger on the national stage. But part of the vision of growth is that it makes us stronger as a um, a community of communities right, that right now has a lot of zero-sum conflicts. You start the book with an argument that I think 
I could share with the conservatives that live around me, you know, like this idea. And it's, it's not a, a nationalist idea. It's not a, you know, USA, USA kind of thing, but it's definitely an idea that there's a benefit to us. And you make a case to the world for America remaining in a sense, the top economic power in the world. Tell me why you started with that argument. Elaborate on a little bit. And why is it important that we stay on top? Yeah. So, you know, one thing I, I definitely try to do throughout this book is take what I hear conservatives saying they care about, try to take it seriously. Um, I'm a left of center person. I think if you look at the specific ideas in this book, they are mostly ideas that you can find on some left of center think tanks website somewhere. I'm not, I, I didn't make any of this up, but I'm trying to speak to topics that I think matter to conservative people. Rightly so. I mean, there's a reason that conservatism has a lot of purchase in American life and really in the life of all countries. And one thing is that it matters where your country stands in the scheme of things. Um, there are economic benefits to economic dominance. Like people want to bring products to market here, right? If you had some cool invention and, you know, maybe you live in Singapore, wherever it is, but like you got to get to America. Right. So we always have a sort of um, leading edge there. We're also a regulatory superpower. If we want to say, okay, you need to make your washing machines more efficient, like companies will complain about that, but they'll do it. If you talk about a little country, you know, Malta cannot tell people what kinds of products to make. Um, it, it doesn't matter. You just walk away from that market. It's something Americans don't even think about. But then in comparison to China, we increasingly have freedom of expression at stake, that as companies become dependent on the Chinese market, or let me back this up. In the 90s, I think a lot of American elites said that economic integration with China is going to inevitably spread American-style political values into China. We would open up China, right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what we have seen is that the opposite has happened, that because the NBA is very popular in China, when you had Daryl Morey, the general manager of the Houston Rockets, he tweeted in English on a platform that is banned in China, a gesture of solidarity with protesters in Hong Kong, and the NBA lost their broadcast contract in, in China for a period of time. And the league was very harsh on him. And a number of players who are very outspoken on social justice concerns in the United States are also mindful of their business interests. And they were very critical of him. And you would not expect China to allow players on television in China to make anti-regime political statements. But the fact that they are able to censor speech in English on platforms that don't exist in China, right? It, it, it shows how far it goes, that we are all familiar with movie studios kind of tweaking things for the sake of the Chinese market. Uh, but they make you do it everywhere now, right? It's not a special China edit. It's your whole film. And it gets... Um, into stuff that, you know, does it matter that the ancient one from the Doctor Strange movie is Tibetan in the comics, but is rendered as a white person in the movies? Like, 
I don't know. I don't care. At the same time, we're talking about we can't stop the People's Republic from erasing Tibetan culture in China. I think. I mean, I, I would like to stop them, but I don't have a plan to do it. But to erase Tibetan culture from America, that's like that's something else. And you don't you don't know where it stops or exactly what to do about it. But the relative scales of our economy are going to be relevant there, right? As a tug of war continues over how far can China's speech norms encroach into the West. We need some policy changes in the United States, I think, to stand up for values that I think really unify us. I mean, there's a lot of divisiveness in American politics, but I don't think there's anybody who thinks that's good. Um, So we're going to need some policies to do something about it, but we also need a strong foundation from which to approach this. If we are the leading market and will continue to be the leading market, then companies, you know, profit-seeking companies around the world will say, okay, we have to care a lot about what America thinks. If we allow ourselves to shrink and stagnate because we can't be bothered to work out a smart immigration policy or find a way to support families or find a way to build infrastructure, we're going to find ourselves, you know, on the wrong side of all those dynamics and we're going to live to regret it. Let me ask you about families because this was another place as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking you know, wow, I, you know, I could talk to my dad about this and share, you know, with, with a conservative person, some common ground here. I've kind of come to recognize the idea of families or the issue of families for conservatives, very much like climate changes for progressives. It's one of those things that kind of affirms everything about your worldview, you know, everything that you find wrong with the world, you can trace back to families or you can trace back to climate change. Every policy that you want to see happen falls like neatly in this rubric. You talk a lot about families here. Like, as you said, you're kind of a center left person. Why are families important? Why should people think families are an important part of of a public policy conversation? I just think it's sort of obvious on some level that this is this is very important. It, it, it matters to people. It's a huge part of their lives. And I think it's a little bit of a we have a little bit of a like fake argument in politics where conservatives like to talk a lot about family and its significance. They don't have a ton of policy to back it up. And then progressives are almost like ashamed to admit that like they think that the best life typically involves finding somebody to spend your life with and raising children with them. But then you see when it arises in a context that is social justice the fight for, for marriage equality, for gay and lesbian couples, uh, progressives got very invested in that, completely understanding why that's important, right? Like the whole premise of that argument was that these like, quote unquote, conservative values around family are in fact just broadly significant to people's lives and that access to marriage and family life, you know, adoption, again, is a, is a big controversy there. The progressives think that those matter, right? Nobody was saying like, oh, who cares? Like, we just need like employment discrimination rules. So then the question becomes like, what can we do, right? Because there is a pushback from the climate angle. There is a strain of environmental thought that I think is very important and is about understanding 
scientifically speaking, like what are the harms of pollution and what can we do to mitigate them? But there's also a strain of apocalypticism and sort of neo-pastoralism that want to like abnegate human existence. Um, And I'm very against that, right? I mean, I think like the two, three, a triangle of like bad influences on America, I would say, are this anti-human streak of left-wing thinking, hardcore libertarianism that wants to say that like, we just can't do anything. We can't like have a goal that we aim for. It's just got to be like, well, whatever happens, happens. And then on the conservative right, this intense skepticism about immigration that I think is really contrary to the whole trajectory of American history and why we're a kind of a great country. It's a very loopy idea, one billion Americans, but it's a very like centrist thematic work, right? That it tries to reject these kind of extreme valued notions and pull together on the fact that like, this is a diverse, dynamic, growing society full of people who are patriotic and care about America and care about family life, but are open to interactions with foreigners, don't want like to be a world amongst ourselves and that we should like be the best that we can be and capture the best of our legacy, which is of trying to have a like large, important, significant country in the world. You provided some data in the book, and this is stuff that I had not heard before, but I found fascinating that, that women express that the number of children they'd like to have is significantly higher than the number that they actually have. And, and when you start to ask them why, there's a lot of reasons, mostly economic, and those reasons feel very solvable. I want to ask you about some of the tension around addressing those problems. Is, is the modern ethic around the role of women discounting women's desire to have more children because it feels old-fashioned? I mean, I think that there has been a neglect of this question of like, what is it that women actually want? A lot of people assume that if you're saying, well, we need to do more to make sure that people can have more children, that that's a kind of an anti, an anti-feminist anti view. There was a change of heart in the course of the 1970s that women went from saying they wanted about three and a half children to about two and a half children. And that's the, we don't have data that goes back further, but that's the kind of fade out of the baby boom era. It's second wave feminism. It's all those things. Since 1980, those desires have been flat at around two and a half children. The number of kids people actually have keeps ticking down. So I think, you know, a serious approach has to say, like, we start with what women say they want in life, uh, which is not giant families. It's not, it's not nine kids and we're all working on the farm, but it's like, I don't know, normal size. So I was born in 1981, like right around when this divergence started. So it's it's very easy for me to say, it's like, look, these family structures that people had in the late 1970s and early 1980s reflected like what people said they wanted. And then after that, the economy started evolving in a way that made that harder and harder. But I think that's right. I mean, I think that's what's there in the data. I was a philosophy major in college. So, uh, you know, in in philosophy, you debate a lot of hypotheticals. 
it would be interesting to say like, okay, if women on average wanted, you know, one or zero children, and that's what was happening, then what would we want to say or do about that? Because that would put society in a very steep demographic decline in a way that I think is problematic. But people would also find it problematic to say, okay, we need like a mass propaganda campaign. Right, right. we have to convince women to to go through labor more, right? Right, I mean, that would, it would be weird. Um, but so as a, as a policy writer, I'm like the opposite of a philosophy student. And I try to say, look, if we forget about these hypothetical questions, and we focus on the actual question, which is that like what people want is a sustainable population dynamic, like in their personal life, and that's convenient as a macro outcome. Like what can we do to make that possible? And it seems like what we can do is help people with the cost of having young kids. And then the needle we have to thread is that there is a lot of social cultural conflict between people who are more career oriented and people who are more family oriented, not in terms of do they need or want some extra financial help with kids, but what form exactly does that help take? I wanted to follow up with that. That's actually my next question was along those lines, because you, you quote Daniel Patrick Moynihan, which I, I feel like you either love Moynihan or you hate Moynihan because he throws truths around the, the one you quote in the book is his saying, you know, the central conservative truth is that it is culture, not politics, that determines the success of a society. The central liberal truth is that politics can change a culture and save it from itself. As you go forward in the book, you outline a bunch of family-friendly programs, you know, from family leave mandates to childcare provisions. And I think these get to that idea of as you just said, you know, people have different needs and different approaches and different desires. How do we meet those? I'm going to ask this because I think you've thought about it. I'm not just uh, trying to poke holes in, in, in what you've said. I think you've actually thought about this. What did liberal policies of the past get wrong about families? And how do we avoid those mistakes in a family-friendly approach to 1 billion Americans? Sure. You know, I think you got to look back at the trajectory of, um, quote unquote, welfare, aid to families with dependent children in the United States. And this was a program that was conceptualized in the 1930s as support for widows. And it was adequate to that kind of need. Then as family structures started to change, it was perceived that this was just cash for non-working unmarried mothers, which is a um, a socially stigmatized group of people. Yeah, we've come up with all kinds of derogatory names for that. And, and I'm glad we moved beyond that in most circles, but yeah. Right. But the, the program was structured in a perverse way. The thinking behind the program, it's a 1930s thinking, was like, okay, we have these virtuous widows. We don't want them forced into the factories to support themselves. We want to give them some money and in effect force them to stay home and take care of their kids in the way that, you know, in our 1930s mindset, we think is responsible. Now, you start applying that in the 1970s and 1980s, very different cultural climate, very different understanding of who the non-married mother is. And suddenly it's like, well, wait a minute. If I, the sort of normative middle-class professional woman, am at work, why is it 
that we have these like layabouts, right? These welfare queens, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it, it was an unsustainable political dynamic. But the way we wound up resolving it was by saying, well, we can't have any cash support for uh, basically non-working parents. And that wound up, it's really intensified child poverty in the United States compared to other countries. And it's left us with this weird patchwork way of addressing the just basic fact, like you talk about anybody and you're like, oh, this guy, like he's making 65 grand a year. You're like, oh, that's fine. That's a good amount of money. It's like, oh, but he's got two kids. And then suddenly like that's, that's a tough one, right? And that's not an unemployed person, just expensive. It's expensive to have children. And what we did is to think in more universalistic terms, right? We have Social Security and Medicare. They give help to all elderly people with the basic understanding that retirement is something that happens in life, something that we want to support. And we don't need to poke into like the super details of like, what are you spending that check on? It's like, you do what you want. You know, you work, you do what you want. And we need to give financial support to all parents. Um, it will help people who are at the margins of poverty, but it'll help middle-class people who just take a big hit to their living standards. Because, you know, it gets awkward sometimes to talk about this, but like there's a biological window in which people have kids. And then there's an autonomous logic of market capitalism. And it just doesn't like assign people income at the time when it's optimal to have a two-year-old around, right? Like, and so it's like, what are you gonna do about that? Now you could imagine, right? I, I mean, you know, an economist would say, well, we could devise some like insane like loan scheme so people can income smooth. But in the real world, we address this kind of thing with the welfare state. Right. And say, look, we need a transfer from more affluent and childless people to middle class and working class people with larger families. And, you know, people don't like taxes. I, like, I don't like to pay taxes. Nobody does. It's, you know, that's life. But like, we got to do these things like or we don't have a society that works. Like if we didn't have public schools, then like nobody could afford anything. Right. Like it would be totally impossible. And so we can talk about education policy, right? But the fact that this important aspect of financial support for children exists is like not that controversial. But you gotta extend it to kids who are younger than five. I want to ask you the environmental question. I was talking to someone about the book, someone who had not read it. And since I'm not traveling anywhere outside of my house, you can reduce who that was without saying her reaction without having read your book was that. 1 billion Americans would be an environmental disaster. Like this is going to consume way too many resources, have way too much waste to spoil, you know, what little is remaining of this continent will be despoiled. Why is 1 billion Americans not automatically an environmental disaster? So there's a lot of different aspects to the environment. Uh, so the most high level thing I think people need to know about this is that a billion is a high number but tripling the population density of the United States leaves us at the population density of France, about half the current population density of Germany, less than that of Italy, and way less than the United Kingdom. To say nothing of, like, Asian countries are, yeah. are off the charts. Those uh, are pretty nice places. Right. And so, I mean, most people I talk to have not been to East Asia extensively, but they've been to Western Europe. And so you can just ask yourself, like, by eyeball, if you go around Germany... 
Like, does it seem to you, is it like a trash strewn hellscape? Like, I don't know. It seems fine to me, but nobody's talking about 2 billion Americans, but that's what Germany is. Germany is 2 billion Americans, not one. So just on a high level, like there is space for these things. Second, you know, if you are a person, which many of us sadly are not, who is informed about like urban planning type issues, if you are a strong downs reader, for example, you're aware that the development footprint of American communities has lots of room for extra people. You don't need to triple that footprint. And in fact, it would not be very desirable to do so. That would be a very bad use of our infrastructure. It would be a very bad use of our, even something as simple as like, there's not as much demand for shopping malls as there used to be, but we have all these shopping malls. Repurposing them into something else is hard, but if the population is growing, then you can just say, well, we don't need more shopping malls. We could just avoid the closure of the ones that we have, right? If you go to Ohio, there's just an incredible amount of underutilized airport capacity there because it's, I don't know, Ohio's not as big a deal as it used to be. But it's like, people can go there. They The extra people aren't gonna like materialize in the middle of the Grand Canyon unless we do something crazy. Then there's the climate issue, which is different, uh, because there, if you're talking about more people in an affluent society, they're going to use more electricity. Our electricity uh, produces carbon dioxide. I mean, there's more to life than electricity. But I think if you take the climate challenge seriously, and I think there's more and more actually consensus around this from the far left to the center right at this point. Climate solution is going to be led by investment and innovation and technological change. You can't conserve yourself down to a climate solution because right now, certain activities just require a lot of fossil fuel usage. You need to invent ways of doing these things that don't do that. And we have, you know, a proof of concept in cars, right? Like, we now have electric cars. They work. They work great. I got a chance to drive a Tesla one time. Like, it was awesome. The reason I don't have one is it's really expensive. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, but I mean, that's totally different from like, oh, this sucks or like we can't do it, right? We, we have developed electric vehicles. More and more are coming on the market. We can speed their adoption. Um, I've got solar panels on my roof. They work great. Windmills work great. Cost of batteries is going down. I'm a pro-nuclear guy. Those work. Like, we can make zero-carbon electricity. And so we need to, like, do that stuff. We need to address those problems. And then it's fine. You can have a prosperous, thriving society based on a low-carbon economy. Um, or else you can just fail, right? Like, you, you can fail to solve the problem. You can fail on innovation. You can fail on deployment. But there's no scenario in which we're going to achieve success by, like, all becoming weird hippies in Vermont, like composting in our cabins. Like that's this kind of like old timey environmentalist vision that is appealing to some people on a lifestyle level. Uh, my aunt moved to Vermont in the seventies. Um, she's a lovely person. Uh, but like that, that's not a solution to anything, particularly when you think about the global dimensions of the problem. I want to talk about immigration. I, I know we won't get to a billion Americans without an embrace of immigration. And it's clear to me that, and you mentioned this earlier, you know, right of center, the politics there make mass immigration very difficult. There's a, there's a lot of work to do there. 
I feel like you, Matt, are willing to kind of move beyond or at least peer beyond, you know, the argument that I get from the left a lot, which is anyone who has concerns about immigration must be a xenophobe or must be a racist. There really is not any legitimate, you know, concerns about it. You you list a bunch in the book, and I thought we're very open about the fact that there's some things to work on here. Can you address how the concerns over jobs, over tax fairness, over, you know, how, how rapidly the culture would shift and change? How do we start to address those in a way that can move us to a, a broader embrace of immigration? I think it's important to address the racism concept. I think people on the left, especially, can get very into a kind of a, a, an academic style um, hermeneutical game in which you're supposed to expose people's like true motivations as illegitimate. And then, and then you put them out and I, it's fine. You know, it is what it is. Politics is about people and what they think and what their preferences are. People are allowed to have different opinions about what kinds of communities they want to live in. And like, you don't need to agree with them or think that it's valid but like some people like living in homogenous small towns. Like you can call that preference set, whatever it is you want to call it. But like the people who prefer to live in homogenous small towns are not going to vanish. You need a political program that works. Like it works for them. It works for everybody. Because I, I like living in big cosmopolitan cities. Uh, but I grew up in New York. I prefer DC. It's smaller. It's a little less cosmopolitan. I've been to Hong Kong. Hong Kong's cool, but it was too much for me. You just, so it's okay. Like it's, a, it's okay for people to disagree. Then you can look at things because if you tell people, well, you're not allowed to say that you just like don't want a bunch of foreigners with weird food living on your block, then you have to come up with a reason that you're like, quote unquote, allowed to express. So you can say, oh, well, I'm really concerned about jobs and wages. But when you look at the research on that, it should really put you at ease about jobs and wages. There are now a good number of studies of huge influxes of people. Since the book came out, there was one about uh, Venezuelans going to Colombia, which has been a, a huge trend because Maduro has like destroyed that country. No negative impact on Colombians' wages. Uh, Syrian refugees in Turkey, no negative impact. I discuss in detail in the book, influx of Cuban Americans to Miami, uh, no negative impact. Um, again, post-publication, they looked at Puerto Ricans not technically immigrants, but similar population flow into Orlando after Hurricane Maria. There they found a decline in construction wages, but offset by an increase in retail wages. So just what you see with all these things is that like immigrants are workers, but they're also customers. Um, the Orlando one is actually very optimistic because it suggests that in the long run, you get a larger capital stock and, and everybody's wealthier. I think the economic situation is good, right? If you can let people say, like, I'm actually not that concerned about quibbling over these like census data and, and these things, but like, I worry about what my community looks like and what the culture is like, then we can try to address those concerns. Like we can think about, well, what's a policy solution there that actually makes sense and that works for you and that lets us have a kind of thriving 
society. That's going to be the work for like actual elected officials who sit around and, and bargain. But, you know, as a writer, I can toss out some ideas and I can also just try to encourage people to be a little more open about this. So like one thing I say is it's an open question. Like do voters authentically have a very strong preference for people who speak English fluently or who speak English as their native language? Um, again, I grew up in New York City, so it is not unusual for me to have people who don't speak English running around. But if you grew up in a place where everybody spoke English and now suddenly there's people living there who don't, I can see how that would be, you know, like you might think that was weird and not want it. Yeah. In central Minnesota, we have a large Somali population. And that's one of the, one of the large complaints you hear over and over is they're not speaking English. And it's like, well, yeah, cause they're not native English speakers. They speak their native language. My, my grandmother spoke Norwegian. My mom does not know a word of Norwegian, but my grandmother spoke it and her, her mother spoke it. And uh, now they don't. And there's like a skepticism that comes in like, well, what are they talking about? You know, or what are they? And, and yeah. in a way you're like, okay, we'll get beyond that, you know, but yet it is very real. I, I hear what you're saying, you know. That, so, right. So, you know, so I say in the books, well, so we could have a law, a much easier process, say, for people from English speaking countries. If people are as bothered as they say they are by people who don't speak English, then it's like, well, maybe it should be really easy to come here from the Bahamas, right? If you're from the Bahamas, you don't have a criminal record, you want to come, you want to work, pay taxes, like, why not? Like, what's the what's the problem there? I had never thought about that, but you it's interesting because one of my good friends is uh, from from Holland. He speaks English. He talks with a funny accent. Everybody likes him. He's a white guy. Everybody around here, he fits in really well. And there's no concern about immigration with him. My thought process has always been, well, how do I get people to think that the Somali immigrant is as nice as Rudy is, you know, and get along with him? And one of the things you said in your book was, well, why not just let anyone from Holland who wants to come, come here? Like, why would we, if nobody objects to it at all, why not do that? And I thought, why not do that? Right. And so Congress is often afflicted by what I call Congress brain, which is like particular issues get constructed in particular ways. So the way Congress functions on immigration is that everyone just agrees that there's this cap on visas and then they argue about who should get the visas. So if you come up with something and you're like, okay, if literally nobody is upset about Dutch college graduates working in the United States, why don't we just allow an unlimited number of Dutch college graduates to come to the United States? So then somebody's going to say, well, you'd have to shrink the diversity visa lottery, or we'd have to reduce the refugee cap. But like, we don't have to do those things. Like, it's our country. Well, you, you brought up Canadians. I mean, why not just let any Canadian who wants, they're very friendly people. I like them. So this was a you know an acute uh, experience of mine. I think she's been she's been outed by our mutual friend Doug Saunders. But when we launched Vox, we got a job app, a very strong job application from a woman who was born in Canada, residing in London, uh, working in the field of writing stuff in English. And I was like, yeah, let's hire her. I was not studied up on immigration, but I was aware of what kinds of complaints people have about immigration. I've never heard anybody complain about like, we've got too many Canadian journalists flooding in. So I figured it would be easy. Our general counsel flags this for me. And she's like, whoa, 
hold your horses here. Julie is Canadian. And I'm like, what? Who cares? And, you know, so we got her in. Like, she she, she came in. We got her a um, alien of extraordinary ability visa <laughs> because she had won some prize. And then later, um, she got married to a diplomat. And so she switched to a different visa. And she's off in Austria. But it's like, if there's no objection, like, why not make it easy? We can debate the things that there's debate about, but we've walked ourselves into this situation where classes of immigrants that nobody seems to have a particular problem with are still like through these hoops. And it's in part, it's like a high-minded neutrality principle. So we'll say, okay, we don't want to say, well, certain countries get special treatment. But if that just means we're leveling down, who is helped by saying we can't give Canada special treatment? Right. It, it feels like if the goal is, and, and this is why I think, you know, the framing of your book is pretty genius. I mean, if the goal is a b- 1 billion Americans and you're like, we all agree, like, let's just put this in the middle of the table. We all agree on that. So just go. And now we're going to debate over here. You're not giving up something by allowing the half that we all agree on to go forward. Right. Also, in other areas of policy, we don't act like that. Right. Like we have in NATO a like specific commitment to defend certain countries. Then we have a supplemental treaty that commits us to defending Japan and South Korea. And we don't have that same obligation to defend Azerbaijan. Right. And like, that's fine. So in trade policy, we have, I think, actually a special deal for the Anglophone Caribbean countries. Right. There's a feeling that the United States has a different relationship with the Bahamas and Trinidad and Tobago than we do with other countries in the world, Um, which I think is true. Right. I mean, an incredible number of people, including our our vice president-elect, are of Afro-Caribbean ancestry in the United States. That immigrant community has really punched above its weight in American political and social life and always has, going back to Marcus Garvey and and other things like that. Uh, And in our trade policy and in our diplomacy, we acknowledge that, that our relationship with those countries is different from our relationship with Ecuador. Uh, But in our immigration policy, we don't. Even though it's actually in immigration, we're acknowledging the existence of those social and cultural connections would make the most sense. Not just people who speak English, like your Dutch friend, but they speak English natively, right? Like you could say, okay, well, you get, you know, you talk to one Dutch guy and like it's friendly, uh, but you get five or six of them together, they start speaking Dutch to each other. Um, it's in my 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 experience. You could get as many people from Jamaica together as you want. Like all they've got is English. They're Christian. So you could just be super racist, which like some people are, but I think, I think that's the point, like be less eager to just like call everybody racist and more willing to say, okay, can we meet that concern? Like, what about this? What about that? And if you're left with the group of people who really are just like so hardcore chauvinistic, I think that's not that many people. Like that's enough people that they just they'll just lose. They become insignificant, right? I totally agree with you on that. I, I, I found your argument on immigration to be incredibly pragmatic in a way that, you know, I can see how difficult it would be politically. But if you and I walked around my hometown and just talked to people, I feel like people would say, yeah, I, I agree with that. I can buy that. 
I'm a Democrat. Um, I wanted Democrats to do a little bit better in the in the 2020 election than they did. I'm glad they beat Trump. But, but I hope that one thing that can come out of this is that people on both sides can end the sort of fantasy of like the final victory that right. makes political right. opposition irrelevant. <laughs> right. Cause I think you saw a lot of that, right? Yeah, so you did. Be, Let's put it, we'll, we'll win and put a stake through their heart. And then that will be the end of 40% of the country. Right. Right. And that doesn't happen. Like politics doesn't work like that. You have to work with, the existence of contending sentiments and social values. And also with the reality that small towny people are overrepresented in the federal legislature. And like, you don't have to like that, but it is true, right? The sorts of social and cultural values that prevail in the, um, the like big empty square states of the Western United States, they just matter a lot. Right. And you need a policy vision that is compatible with getting at least some of those people to support you. That's just life, you know, and actually caring about whatever it is you say you care about means working in a real way with a country that is going to continue to have people from both sides. No, I can give a version of this lecture to conservatives, right? I mean, I think Trump was really like, dead end version of like, we're just gonna, we're just gonna load up on this and we're gonna roll. I'm like, where did they roll to? Like what was achieved in the past four years for anything conservatives say that they care about? And it's, it's nothing. And that's because Trump at no point in time was like, okay, here's what I care about. What do you care about? What can we do that reconciles these or, or advances these ideas? And if progressives try the same steamroller approach, they'll get the same outcome, you know, which is that you feel good as long as you win the election, and then you feel bad when you lose the election, but you don't achieve anything during your time in office. And I think if you care about greatness, or diversity, or poverty, or whatever the, these other things are, you have to try to make like a good faith effort to advance your agenda, which means accepting some input from people who are on the other side to like really try to, like it's hard, politics is hard. Uh, but, but, but if you're not trying, you're definitely gonna fail. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. 
The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.